Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today's guest is Eugene Peterson. And today's sponsor is Podbean. Exactly. Before we get to Eugene Peterson, let me tell you about Podbean. It's an all in one podcast hosting and. Yeah, you want to celebrate this like Adeline's doing. Podbean, it's a great place to go. If you want to get a podcast started, they can take good care of you like they've taken good care of me for many years. Now, with their new mobile app, you can record a podcast directly on your phone using like the voice memo feature, which is exactly what I'm using right now to record this intro. And uh, you can record it using the Podbean mobile app and post it directly from your phone as well. So it takes all the effort out. All you need to do, you take care of the content. They'll take care of the hosting for you. So go check out Podbean for more information. And this new book, Eugene Peterson, uh, it's a collection of his sermons. Um, It's great. Uh, I've read a bunch of the sermons in there, and they're really, really uh, good, as you would expect from Eugene Peterson. Uh, This podcast, uh, it was just an honor to talk to a man who's been doing it for so many years and still has some amazing things to say. So uh, check it out and go check out Podbean, uh, like when the podcast is done. So here we go. One second here. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today I am immensely honored to have Eugene Peterson with us today. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great. Uh, Well, uh, now for people who don't know where you live, you used to live in the Baltimore area, and, and for the last few decades you've kind of lived out out in the country, right? Uh, not exactly the country, Montana. <laughs> well, some some people think anything in Montana is just country. <laughs> well, it is. It's a nice country. <laughs> Do, living in Montana compared to the hustle and bustle of being in the D.C. area, how has that changed your ability to write, to uh, to reflect, to connect with people compared to, like, D.C.? It seems like you're around so many more people. You get their experiences so much easier. What's the biggest difference? Uh, I think it gives me space. Um, partly, it's partly because um, this is my home country. I, grew, I was born here, grew up here, and my experience on the East Coast was, uh, was pretty significant for me. But when I was... Um, as a writer, I, I think I prospered more here than I would have anyplace else. Mm-hmm. Which of the two hats that you've worn, pastor and writer, which one do you think comes most, most naturally to you? Which one do you think is the easiest fit for you to step into? Um, well, that's, that's hard. I, basically, I'm a pastor. And I am a pastor of a small congregation, have been. And uh, the writing is, has been part of my life since since I was in diapers, I think. <laughs> uh, things, uh, I just I had that natural bent for writing. And uh, actually, I was always quite surprised at how ready people were to um, think it's, was the right thing to do, but it, uh, I have a knack for it, I guess. And, uh, so, um, but I was, I think I could, 
I, I guess I could answer your question more accurately is uh, the most important thing about me as a pastor was that I was able to live with people in close um, relationship and understand their language, understand their the way they lived, and reinterpret it into, into the, um, uh, the language of the Bible, um, of, of, of Jesus, actually. So I think that, for me, they fit together. They just... Uh, I felt at home with the uh, people in the small congregations, and um, was able to help them understand the faith in a more clear and um, open way. Yeah. I think I've read you making a statement before that someone can't really pastor a group over 300 people. You just don't have the ability to do that. Uh, you just said a second ago that as you described yourself, you lived in close relationship to people. Why do you think that close relationship is important for you as a pastor or, or any pastor? Um, well, the, the faith, the gospel faith, the Christian faith, is, is relational. And the minute you lose the capacity to be relational to someone else, you start distorting the nature of what it means to be uh, saved by grace. Uh, and uh, I think the bigger the crowd, the less truth. Hmm. And uh, that's basically because uh, in order to be truth, in order to have truth in the biblical sense, You've got to be responding um, to the Spirit, but to your friends, your your family. Uh, this is not just a matter of head things. And uh, so I think um, the pastor, if, he's really, if he or she is really a pastor, uh, can't do a lot of things. Uh, just in being a rhetorician, um, doesn't do it. There's a, so your new book is called uh, As Kingfishers Catch Fire, and it's a, an assortment, a collection of your sermons that uh, you've done over many years. And one of the sermons that you, you, you have in there is a sermon about the rich young ruler. And you talk about the idea that following Jesus has, um, has become now something that we do to get something from Jesus. And there's a line in there about large crowds, the 10,000, the 20,000, the 30,000 attendees. They show up to receive, not to follow Jesus. And so when the crowds get bigger, it's harder for the pastor to speak truth, but it's also for the, the congregation to follow. Why do you think it's harder to follow in a large group instead of the, the natural temptation just to receive instead of to follow? Uh, well, I think, I think the nature of the, of the faith, resurrection, a 
basically is uh, something you have to be receptive to, not understand, or not just understand. And when you're with, uh, with crowds, uh, the, uh, the distractions are numerous, and the temptation to judge, to um, to I don't know just quite how to say this now. Uh, when I was in my first congregation, there was a woman. That we, we the church was in our basement, and um, so it was a suburban congregation, and there were maybe 50 or so people that were coming, and uh, some of them were young people. And uh, it was low, the low settings for the basement and the cement walls. And uh, <clears throat> there was nothing, as, nothing um, that was uh, attractive about it in terms of aesthetics. And uh, after about oh, two or three months, there was a young person. She was a high school girl. And as she came out of the, out of the uh, church, started climbing the stairs out of the basement, she said to me, oh, Pastor, I just love coming here. I just feel like I'm coming where the, in the, into the catacomb like the early Christians did. And um, so some of the other you heard her say that. And they, we hadn't, didn't have a name for the church at that point. And... Um, so they started calling it uh, Catacombs Presbyterian Church. And um, it kind of took on, and everybody started calling it that. But when we finally got to the place where we could be ourselves, uh, you know, more, well, we could, we, could, we could develop a congregation that suited our congregation. Um, our elders didn't really think that was a very, very uh, smooth name, so they they called it. When they named, they renamed it Christ Our King Presbyterian Church. And uh, <laughs> but I still liked catacombs. Yeah, it's a good name. <laughs> I think all name. the young people did too. One of the stories in this book is about a 36 Plymouth that, as a kid, you would uh, tear this car apart but you didn't have the ability to put it together. And you make the analogy of that 36 Plymouth to often what happens with uh, literary and theological um, critiques of texts, specifically like the text of Moses. And the historical critical approach has a way of, of tearing the text down, just like you tear, tore the car down, but sometimes it struggles to put it back together. Um, how do you see those two things working of... Is there, what is the place for historical critical criticism of text while also having the text to be able to um, just still drive, so to speak? Uh, I think that's a good question. Um, there's, I don't think, and I, 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 really, I learned this early as a young pastor, you've got to understand the whole Bible. Mm-hmm understand any single part of it. This is not just a series of doctrines that you specialize in. Um, and if you don't have the whole thing, like, 
like that car that my dad took apart or I took apart and, and it never did run. Um, but I knew all those parts. I just didn't know how they worked. And uh, I think there's a lot of that, a lot of that goes on in the churches and the, uh, you know, the yeah, the, the, the congregations. And that's why there's so much splitting of churches. Uh, they think they found found one thing there that makes it justifies the whole thing, and if you don't have that one thing, you're yeah. you have to go and get another denomination. When I was coming out of seminary, I had a lot of the historical critical influence in my life, where I thought, you know, using my skills developed in seminary, the books out of my shelf, that I could take apart text and come up with the one right reading of it, which I obviously is a flawed approach. That's not how scripture works. And right. I, in probably, I, I think I graduated 11 years ago from seminary with my MDiv. And in the last 10 or 11 years, part of me coming back to be able to let the car drive, to use your metaphor, uh, was actually the message translation, which, let's put it this way. Like when I'm in seminary, I'm not allowed to quote the message for a Old Testament theology paper. Fair to say. Um, but for me, coming back to the, me- the message yeah. was a way for me to not get caught on the historical critical shortcomings, but to see the beauty in what the text is trying to be. As someone who took on that task of not only as a pastor communicating scripture, but also making the translation, which so many have, have been blessed by the message, did you see that as kind of two things you're trying to do at the same time to understand how the car is supposed to run? but to not let everyone have to get caught up in exactly what a carburetor does or what a, uh, a good brake pad is supposed to sound like? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, that, that translation of the message that has been, become so well accepted now, uh, I didn't do that deliberately. It was in the 1980s, and there were... There were um, there were just riots in the cities. I was near near Baltimore, and people were you know people in my congregation were buying guns. They didn't ever have a gun before in their life. And uh, there was one very mild man, middle aged, and he went out and bought a, a wrench that's about oh I don't know two feet long. And he put it beside his door so in case anybody stopped him, he could just swing that and knock him down. And uh, I and I thought, you know, these people, they don't know what the, what the gospel is. Um, and so I started telling them that they've, they've got to just listen to God, make them free. They're free of sin, free of this, free of that, but it's, um, well, they didn't get it. I didn't think they were getting it. So I started a Bible, Bible study with men and um, tried to teach them. And, and I thought Galatians was a, good, was a good place to start. Galatians was Paul's angriest letter, and he just let it all out. And uh, so I thought I'd just teach him Galatians and that would be cured. 
and uh, that they weren't. And then I went home one day and I said to my wife, I'm going to teach him Greek. If they knew Greek, they'd get it. <laughs> and she said, that would really empty the place out. And so I thought, well, I'm going to listen to my congregation and pay attention to the way they use language. And uh, then I took those that language and I wrote it in what sounded to me like um, the gospel and, and, the, and the text itself. And, uh, but I, didn't, I wasn't trying anymore to do the scholarly thing. The scholarly thing. Um, and uh, so I ended up um, doing that for a whole year, and uh, the congregation was starting to get it. And I started listening to my congregation. Uh, <clears throat> at the same time, I was listening to my Bible. And it was surprising how, um, how clear it became. Uh, and uh, so I, I wasn't trying to do something new in a translation. I was trying to pay attention to the people that were around me, mm-hmm. my congregation for one thing, for the big thing. And uh, so I think that the message, the message Bible, was a big surprise to me. I, I just thought I was doing what everybody does, who's paying attention to congregations. And uh, yeah. but um, they did, they weren't. So a lot of a lot of the translations that are put out are people's compare them to each other, and I don't uh, find many people that talk to me comparing the message to something else. I, I love this reoccurring theme of your work of listening to the congregation, of the relationality of what it means to be a pastor, what it means to be a Christian. And one of the, the texts that I, I love your translation, the, especially for, is the Beatitudes. And in, in a sermon that, that's included in the book, you make the observation that the context for the original audience is much different than for our congregations and for us today. Uh, You argue that the ancients were often afraid that their happiness um, would cause the gods to punish them, and so there's almost like this downtrodden attitude, whereas Mm -hmm. modern people are afraid that our unhappiness will somehow uh, be unsettling to our neighbors and the people around us. And so there's almost the the antithetical disposition of receivers of the Beatitudes today when we expect to be happy and people in the first century when they expect to be, you know, downtrodden or or crestbroken, crestfallen. Um, How do you think we can reappropriate a text like that in the Beatitudes when we receive things so, so oppositely? Um, Well, a good pastor helps. Um, when I, when I made the translation in the Beatitudes, I, uh, I think the person that influenced me most was a woman who came to church. And uh, I was doing these at this, at this time. And uh, I didn't know her. She never gave me her... Well, she, it was a year before she gave me her name. Um, but every time she left church, she said... I feel so lucky. Where have I been all my life? I feel so lucky. 
Well, in the, in the, in the uh, world I grew up in, lucky was a bad word. And, uh, and, my, and my editor, when I was playing around with this, he says, you can't do that. Do you realize that half the people in the South <laughs> think that lucky is a code word for a Lucifer? And the minute you say lucky, you're praying to the devil. <laughs> and, uh, so I took that under consideration, <laughs> but I, but I uh, finally got my my nerve up, and I started using yeah. "lucky" for "blessed." And um, nobody seems to now think that it's <laughs> Lucifer. So, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I've never so, heard that. Uh, the translation that you have, where uh, in the Beatitudes, your translation is. Uh, you're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. It's in that moment you become the proud owner, owner of everything that can't be bought. Uh, that, that, right. that one is, I've carried that around for probably about nine months. And it, it, speaks, it, it speaks to me in a way that um, some of the other translations, that it just doesn't, it, it, it doesn't come straight forward. It's almost like Dickinson's thing about tell all truth on the slant. It's like it, it, it gets the message in there, but it's coming from uh, an angle that's unexpected. Why do you, do you think in some ways that we become inoculated to some of the, the truth in texts like the Beatitudes because some of us have heard it so much that we need to have something like the message to come in from the side angle to, to wake us up to the good news in there? I think so. I think that's why I think that's why a smaller congregation, and I don't mean by smaller, fifteen people or something like that, but uh, you listen to your friends, and um, if all you're doing is listening to a radio preacher who is very eloquent and polished, um, you're not going to get the the texture of the people you're living with. And uh, I think that's important. The, you pay attention to the people you live with and with your kids. You know, I've learned, I learned more from, well, I shouldn't say more. I learned a lot more of, uh, of the gospel, I think, from my, my teenagers. Uh, just because they, did, they had a fresh way of coming, coming at it. So I'm, and I, I don't mean to be uh, snobbish about the big congregations. Uh, there's, there's good things being done in a lot of places that I yeah. wouldn't walk into myself. Well, I think there's definitely but, a uh, different dynamic. And so I, I was a part of a church that my wife and I started that was, I don't know, under 100 people. And the church that I pastor now, uh, you know, thousand plus people, or I don't know however many are part of it now. And to say that only good things happen in one would be to miss a lot of the good news of what's breaking out in larger churches. And church is much larger than the one I'm a part of. But I think you have to work to find the kind of community in a big church. And I love the refrain that you keep going back to the importance of connection and community being the place where it's all about. And there, there are a lot of uh, pastors who maybe if they had their ability, the ability that you do to write in the way you do, 
they would find themselves uh, unfettered from the complications and the messiness of church life, and they can just do their writing out on their own, uh, disconnected from all the struggles of being a pastor. You, you seem like you're constantly wanting to step back into the struggles of being a pastor and stay in the midst of that mess. Why do you think that is? I think it's cheating to oversimplify something and uh, making it easy for people to do it. Uh, no, I think when you're a, when you're a pastor with a congregation, you're listening to these people, uh, trying to interpret first for yourself, uh, but then for them. Uh, the uh, This business of being a human being, let alone being a Christian, is uh, it's a it's complicated, and if you just make if you don't provide some kind of a way which people can reinterpret without underinterpreting, um, I think that's why pastors are important um, because they you know they can come to people's home and they can learn what it is and how to what's going on there and help people um, find ways to take care of their kids in certain ways and mm-hmm. not just buffalo them. There's a, there's a struggle that you touch on in the book about uh, pastors becoming simply business builders instead of serving souls. And you, you obviously, according to your testimony in the book, you had that struggle, and eventually you became more patient with people, and you saw people as an integral part of the sermon. For those of us who are pastors, uh, and we feel that temptation of being business builders instead of serving souls, what advice do you give us on how to, to prevent us from going down that, that all-too-easy path? Go to their homes. I have a son who's a pastor, and it's um, he's a good, really a good pastor. But his uh, he had to do some building things, and uh, he called up on one day and he said to me, "I just came back uh, from being all day." Going to going to um, just going cold into the, the, the uh, homes of my congregation, and I've never felt so much like a pastor in my whole life. Um, but he'd been caught up with a building program, and uh, you can't really be a pastor satisfactorily. You might get a lot more people, but um, he felt like a. Mm-hmm. Well, he, he this was his calling. Yeah. This is what he started out doing, and when he got distracted from it, he recovered by just going to their homes and mm-hmm. um, talking with them, praying with them, um, okay. and not bringing his own agenda to it. You know, 
our, our congregations, they're human beings. They've got stuff that they're doing with. And uh, one of my favorite uh, stories is probably not exactly what this is, but it was when I was starting a congregation. I went into a um, family, and this woman said, um, uh, does somebody pay your car? Your, um, do you have a salary you get? And I said, yes, I do. And she said, well, the Bible says you can't do that. And I said, where does it say that? And she started fumbling through her Bible, and finally I got tired of watching her fumble. I said, Man, let me, give me your Bible, and let me see if I, if I can find it. And um, I found mm-hmm. it, of course, in about two seconds. <laughs> so, um, and she said, uh, and then, and then I said to her, I said, you know, if you, um, if if you well, take take off your. She had really bright red, uh, expensive shoes. If you take off your shoes and walk barefoot, I'll take away. I'll give away my congregation, uh, my uh, my money. And she got mad at me, <laughs> and I had to leave without uh, without a convert. <laughs> but you know, if I. We learn how to know people, love them, when we don't judge them. And uh, she was judging me pretty, pretty hard and fast, so I didn't take her for my pastor. Why do you think we can't love people if we're judging them? Uh, because you're not looking, looking at them. You're looking at something you don't like. How? Or you think you can... How do you move past that? Because often we just get stuck on the uh, the speck of sawdust in our own eye that makes us be unable to see anything but the issues in someone else. Well, I think you... you I always had a... Um, in, in the years I was a pastor, which was many, many years, I always gathered... Um, a group of pastors in my community, and we, on Tuesdays of every week, we uh, we came together and had sandwiches and lunch, and we just studied the the passage for that week together. Many of us didn't um, use lectionary. I did half the time. Um, but uh, we, we know we had we had Seventh Day Adventists. We had um, priests. I had one of the men was the most uh, was uh, one of the one that contributed most to us. It was a, was a Jew, um, and his um, congregation, and. Uh, if somebody was having a difficult time, a divorce or kids running away, we just we dropped the text and kind of uh, listened to them and talk about them, and so we weren't tied to our, this uh, 
And we just we just called this a company of pastors. And we did that for well well for thirty years and then went in one place. And uh I sometimes thought uh Thomas Mann had a had a short story of a of a uh, lumberman and a uh he always had the same um, axe. Sometimes the uh, handle would wear away, and he'd get another handle. And sometimes the uh, the uh, yeah, the top part, the the blade. <laughs> That's right. And they he would get another, another something else. But it was he was eighty years old, and he still had the same same hammer, same. Yeah. Um, axe, axe. Well, um, I think that's a pretty good thing about what we do. We don't, we don't use, we don't have to use the same thing over and over and over again. Sometimes we have to realize this, that's dull. You know, we'd need a new piece on that. But uh, you don't do it just by looking at it and thinking about it. You're using it, and. Uh, if you're not using it, you don't know if it's working or not. So anyway, this company of pastors, uh, I had that for uh, 25 years, and we had great uh, conversations, prayers. Somebody was getting divorced, and we just drop everything and be prayerful with them, and Hmm. Oh, that's such a blessing. Um, well, this has been a, an absolute blessing to me to get to talk with you. Um, I, I've read many of your books over many years, and uh, like so many others, I'm very indebted to, uh, to the work that you've done. And so I, I appreciate the time. Your, your new book, uh, As Kingfishers Catch Fire, uh, was a great book. I, I enjoyed reading it. And um, just thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Yes, sir. It's a pleasure. Take Talk care. To you. Blessing, sir. Thank you. All right, friends. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, don't forget to check out our sponsor, Podbean, for all your podcast hosting or publishing needs. Podbean is the company that will take good care of you, like they've taken good care of me. And don't forget their mobile app to get you hosting a podcast directly from your phone. All the guesswork is taken out. Super easy. Go check them out. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. We'll see you back here next time.